0: Thank you. Last night was quite a night here. We planned for everything except the message. But we had some good reports from ministries that we are not too well aware of, from people who are helping, especially young people, and we thank God for that. We heard from some of our students as well. We were hoping to hear from more. But those who spoke gave us quite a bit of information for which we are thankful. So we weren't able to hear from all of our students, but we hope we can do so uh, at a later time. Of course, we also wanted to open the floor for your testimonies as well, which we didn't have time to do. So because I was not able to finish my message before the countdown began, and as you know, the countdown started right at the introduction of the message almost, but we're thankful for that. So what I'm going to do this morning is to continue my message I began last night. In fact, I'm going to do more than continue. I'm going to speak the whole message over. So those of you here last night, please don't think that you're getting a repeat performance. Think about it that you're getting two for the price of one. (laughs) Because you're going to hear something you heard, but something you didn't hear as well. All right? Today, we want to be looking at a passage of scripture that um, many people have been using Uh, throughout this year and for a long time, of course. And it's a beautiful passage of scripture, and I'm sure you know it. It's Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And it says, For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Of course, a lot of emphasis is placed on that prosperity part, and mostly they're thinking about financial prosperity. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That really is. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now in 1989, 96 fans were crushed to death in a soccer stadium in Sheffield, England. And another 200 were injured. At one of the hospitals where the victims were taken, an attending surgeon spoke to the parents, who had come to find out the fate of their children. The surgeon read the names of those who were killed, and he expressed his sympathy to the parents, the grieving parents. And then he added that he believed that God understood the parents' grief and was with them in this time of need. But one grieving father who was really struggling with the death of his young son responded in this fashion, What does God know about losing a son? What does God know about losing a son? Quite a question, isn't it? Well, I want to answer that question a little bit this morning in my message. And I want to answer it by looking at a passage in Acts chapter 2. And it says this. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Excuse me. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now notice. This passage here is telling us that Jesus has a plan for his people. But there is another passage of scripture, and I think I read the wrong one. That's Romans 8. I wanted to read Romans 2. Yeah. Acts 2, rather. Let's see if I can. I must have misplaced that reading here. Pardon me for that. Maybe I should forget my notes and just go to the Bible. Amen. You like that one, eh? Acts chapter 2. Let me read that passage for you. Acts chapter 2. And this is the first time I'm using this particular Bible. It's a great Bible here, a study Bible. It's called the HCSB, Study Bible. Life Essentials Study Bible. James, I'm sorry, um, Jean Getz is the editor. It's a beautiful, beautiful study Bible. And it's even more effective if you use it on the web. It has uh, some real great uh, uh, aspects to it. So I recommend that for you. Acts chapter 2, verses 28. One of this book has yes. Okay. Looks like this Bible has more notes in it than it has Bible. I'm reading from verse uh, 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice, it was God who planned the death of his son. He planned the death of his son. Now, If it's anyone then who knows about the death of his son, it would be God the Father. Because he actually planned the death of his son. Now, this is why when you go to the scriptures, you will find that God is really the master planner. And now I want to read the passage from Romans 8. In order to show you that, before I do that, in order to emphasize a point, I want to show a little clip from a movie. Now, those of you who are a little bit more fundamental and traditional than I am, please don't be offended. This is a secular movie. It's not a Christian movie, but it has the point that I want to make. Can we have that now, please? You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife That's a knife Just kids having fun You all right? I'm always all right when I'm with you, Dundee God, that sounds corny. Now, let me read your passage Scripture, then I'll show you why I use that. And now it's verse 28 of Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, These he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now that's a plan. Every aspect of the believer's life is here. From the very beginning of our regeneration to the moment of our glorification. God has planned every step. And by the way, we are living between the time that he called us to the time we are glorified. But in God's sight, those whom he called, we are already glorified. The plan is already completed as far as God is concerned. We're just going through the process. The steps that he wants us to go through are the steps here of being conformed to the image of his son. Friends, God is the master planner. He knows where he's going and how he's going to get there. And because he's in charge of the planning, we have nothing to worry about. When we are with him, we are okay. When we are with him, we are all right. We have nothing to fear because of the fact that the one who did the plan, who made the plan, is the one who is carrying out the plan. And that's God himself. And so he plans both the purpose and the process. Both the why and the how. Now, Satan also has plans for us, doesn't he? He does have plans for us. In fact, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians that uh, he has schemes or devices that he has set against us and so as you enter 2012 satan will probably come up to you with his plan and he say i have a plan for you a plan that will ruin your life and he will wave that in your sight says here is my plan what i'm encouraging you to do as god's people today whenever he confronts you a plan that is contrary to God's will and that's all the plans he has. I want you to take up your Bible and wave it in his face and say, you think that's a plan? This is a plan. And once I have this plan, I'm okay. Right? This is the plan that God has for us. God's plan is bigger and more effective than Satan's. And so when he comes around, I say to you in 2012, waving his evil plans before you, pick up your Bible, wave it in his face and say, you call that a plan? This is a plan. And in God's hands, I'm okay. Notice the the verse again. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. And that's the word Yahweh. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. And so what he's telling us here as we put it all together and God being the planner and Satan being the one who wants to use plans that take us away from him. He wants us to understand that he has good plans for us. And so when Satan comes to you in times of problems or difficulties because of health, because of finances, marital problems, and they seem so huge that you cannot handle it and you want to go a different route that you know is contrary to God, that Satan says, I have a plan for you. I say to you again, you just take up your Bible and say, hey, this is the plan, the plan that God has for me. But now, the question I want to ask and answer in this message is, can we claim this promise, this statement here as is? Is this cart blank? In other words, is this true of us regardless of what we do or do not do. There are some uh, speakers and preachers today who present their messages in that way. They would take this verse and say to an unsaved person, this is God's plan for you. You are going to be okay. You're going to be prosperous. You're going to be all right. They give no conditions, nothing at all. They just say, it's caught blank, it's for you. But does the Bible teach that? Well, I don't think it does. And if we accept it, without conditions, I think we're going to be disappointed and we are going to have uh, expectations that will not come about because we are claiming a promise in a way that it should not be claimed. This promise is given within the boundaries of a context which must be fulfilled before the promises can be realized. It's a context. So I want to look at that context with you this morning. The historical context is given in the same chapter, the beginning. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles. Nebuchadnezzar had carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was addressed to the elders who were left among the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and to all the other people who were exiled in Babylon. The point is that the immediate context here is that the people of God were in captivity when this promise was given. In other words, they were in a lot of trouble. They were in a they had a lot of problems. They were captives in Babylon. That's when this promise was given to them. And so it is in a context of problems and difficulties. And that's a good note for us, because in the midst of the most difficult problems, you could be sure that the grace of God will shine out. As someone has said to me, and I've always liked this, he says, Whenever you see a problem, always look for the rainbow of grace, because somewhere you'll find God's grace in every problem, in every difficulty. And this is what the prophet, I believe, is saying to the people here, "Listen, you are in a foreign land, you are captives, but God is still with you, and He's given you a promise." Now that's the immediate context the Israelites or the Jews in captivity facing a lot of problems the supracultural principle the universal principle we can derive from that is to apply it to the people of God who are living in a world that is godless, a world that is hostile to Christ we can take that as a universal principle in order to apply it to our lives in Jeremiah 29.4 the verse said the Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, says to all those he sent into exile. Now notice, who sent them into exile? God did. That means their being exiled was a part of his plan for them. Problems and difficulties, believe it or not, are a part of God's plan, good plan to make you prosperous. prosperous to make you happy. This is, the, this is the principle I'll be on to see in this verse. Their captivity was a part of his overall sovereign plan for them. And so really he's saying to them in that land, don't be sad, be glad in the midst of problems and difficulties. This is something, beloved, we have to learn as we enter 2012. That even with difficulties and problems coming our way, we have to be glad because we know that we have a God who's planning our good and our best. Right? That's the principle coming from here. We must acknowledge then that God has control over and he's present in all of our circumstances of life. The good and the bad. He's a part of it. Right now, God is there with the Hannah family. He is there with Brother Hannah. Brother Hannah had a code blue called on him twice yesterday. How do you think his family felt about that? How do you feel right now? Because he's still going through a difficult time but they are trusting in God who plans all things out for the good of his people. When we are with God, we are okay. We have to remember that, even in bad times. That's what the passage is telling us. Their captivity was a part of his overall sovereign plan for them. According to James, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, here's the process. A testing that produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. A literal reading of that, a free reading of it, don't abort the process before the product is born. Don't abort the child before the child is born. If you do, you will not have the child, of course. You cannot abort the process and expect for the finished product to come out. We are in a process of And problems and difficulties and trials are a part of that process, a part of God's plan for us. So no matter what plan the devil has for us, God has a bigger and a better plan. That's the plan that we must lay a hold of. He says, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, that's the process we are about. And as we go into 2012, we should realize that the process is continuing. Listen to Jeremiah; advice to these people who are living in captivity in this land. And this is very strange to me. Build houses and settle down. Don't look for a way out. Isn't that crazy? Don't look for. I'm going to try to get together with some guys and get an opposition, and we're going to overthrow the government. And we're going. No, no. Build houses and settle down plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and let your daughters get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number. Don't dwindle away. God always likes for people to have children. Right from the beginning. Didn't he say that? Huh? Even in hard times. Don't dwindle away. Work Notice this now. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Now isn't that paradoxical? God sends them into this place to be captives. And he says, now I want you to work for the betterment of that place, that city. Pray to the Lord for it. Pray to the Lord for the city in which you are being held captive. Notice now. Because As it prospers, you will prosper. So notice where the prosperity is now. Their prosperity is tied to their praying for the people in which they are being held as captives. Isn't that crazy? But you see, that's God's thinking. And remember, God says, my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways different from yours, above yours. In this place of captivity... You go about your normal life, live normal lives, even in times of abnormality, when things don't seem right. I like to say, keep your life flowing around potential dams. And that's not a cuss word, okay? I'm talking about something that is in the flow of your river of living, your life. It's a problem, a difficulty. And you put so much emphasis on it, you build a dam. And it stops you from living because you have one problem With your wife or your husband Or your child or your boss You don't come to church anymore You don't see your friends anymore You don't do anything, everything stops Because you and your husband, you and your wife Are not doing anything You stop coming out to minister You do all kinds, you your life stops Because of one problem One difficulty He says, no, 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 you don't live that way You, don't, you continue on living Living Obeying God and glorifying God in the midst of problems and difficulties. Don't let one problem damn up the flow of God's blessing in your life. That's what he's telling his people. In this land of problems and difficulties, keep living, looking to me and calling upon me. And he's saying here, turn your negative circumstances into something positive. Now when we start to study Second Corinthians, the book end the book Begins with that. He says, listen, look at all of your problems, all the difficulties you are having as a school that God is sending you to. Because how you come through that, you will use it as a means of ministering to others. Remember, he says the blessing wherewith I have blessed you, you will bless others and so on. And that's what he's saying here. Everything that happens in the life that God has planned for us has a purpose. Everything, the good and the bad. That's what this passage is teaching us. He's also teaching us in this passage to impact our sinful culture and society with Christian principles and living. That's what he's saying. We have to live Christ-like in our in this society. In a godless society, we must live godly. In a Christless society, we must live Christ-like. That's what he's teaching here. We have to impact. This culture with the culture of Jesus Christ. You see, my friends, we don't have to do anything to be conformed to the world. Everything around us is conforming us to the world. We have to somehow fight against that. That's what Paul calls being transformed. And so rather than just absorbing everything our society and culture points in our direction and gives us, we need to, to plan that if you want but Christian principles. Some people laugh at me when I try to say, I'm not going to call Easter Easter anymore, but Resurrection Day. Or even Christmas. I'm not going to call it Christmas anymore. I'm going to call it Incarnation Day. Why? Why are you doing that? Because I am trying to infect this godless culture with a godly culture. You understand what I'm saying? We have to make impact somehow by doing things differently. If we don't, we will automatically be conformed to this world system. And so many Christians are living like that. They can live just like the ungodly person, doing things the same way they do without any conscience anymore. Why? Because it's become a way of life. Rather than resisting it, think about the other some other uh, captives we had. Uh, what's their name? The young fellas. Shadrach, Meshach. Uh, But he had another guy, Daniel. Right? They did not live according to the culture in which they were given. Isn't that right? They resisted it, and as a result, God honored it in a mighty way. Now, they had a little bit of problems. They had some heat put on them, to say the least. Right? But they stood strong. What I'm saying to you as we enter 212, we've got to do the same thing. Because Christians are being being conformed to the world too long. It's time for us to show resistance. We have to become resistors to this culture that we're living in. Then he goes on, not only are we to impact culture and society with our Christian lifestyle, but we are to pray for our enemies, our country. I shouldn't say enemies, although that's included. Pray for the Godless country in which we are living. That's what he told these people. Pray for it, for their prosperity will be yours. We Christians like to complain and holler about all the crime and everything going on. And we are blaming everyone else other than us. But you know, the scripture tells us something. uh, Paul tells us exactly what Jeremiah is telling us here. In 1 Timothy 2, this is what he says to the church. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You see the connection there? Our praying can lead to a godly society, a tranquil society. But it's the praying of God's people. You see? And so we have to ask ourselves... When last have we prayed for this society, for this government, and so on? Because here, God puts the reason for a lot of what's going on in our corrupt society upon the Christians, because we're living corrupt lives as well. How do you think the church feared when in one year you had two professing Christian leaders being charged for immorality? I mean, that just brings disgrace upon the church. And I'm not saying these men were guilty, they were found that way, but I'm just saying it brought shame to the cause of Christ. Don't you agree? But you see, that was publicized. Look at your own life. What do you do when you come through customs? How do you show Christ-likeness when you fill out your forms? How much time do you lie and deceive and cheat and deceive and do all of that? you just as bad as everybody else who has not named the name of Christ. We have to change culture by even in times where we lose. Paul even talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, if somebody has wronged you, don't sue that person. You take the loss yourself so that God might be on it. But boy, let me tell you, Christians don't think that way today, do they? Not me. That's my money. He's not going to get away with that. And we put all kinds of rationalization to get around what God says. Do not sue a brother because it brings his grace upon the people of God. We have to show a different lifestyle in 2012 if we are going to make any impact at all. That's what he's talking about here. Now, Jeremiah gives some additional advice and instructions for living a godly life in an ungodly culture. And all this has to do with the plan of God, as we'll see. Later on in the chapter, verse 8, he says... For the Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, says, Don't let the prophets or those among you who claim to be able to predict the future by divination deceive you. I see, he's talking to his own people now. He's saying that, hey, be careful as to who you listen to when it comes to God's directions for your life. Don't pay attention to the dreams that you are encouraging them to dream. Notice, you are encouraging them to dream. In other words... These people were given; these leaders were giving to the people what the people wanted, not what God wanted them to hear. They are prophesying lies to you and claiming my authority to do so. But I did not send them. I, the Lord, affirmed it. And beloved, if there's one day in which we, one day in which we have these things going on, it's today. How many people are claiming to be prophets and they get up and say, The Lord told me to do this, I declare to you this, I declare to you that, and I pronounce this and I pronounce that and so on. God told me to do it. God says, Be careful, because a lot of them are liars. They will say that I sent them, but I want you to know I didn't. And so He's telling us to be careful to who we listen to in a wicked world. Not only from the unsaved, but from those who profess to be believers, because many times they're the greatest deceivers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. So he's saying here, don't follow false teachings or false teachers. Don't listen to the deceiving dreamers of vision. And again, if it's one day you hear if it's any time you're hearing about people dreaming and having visions, is today. And so this, is, this passage is very pertinent to us. Be careful to who you listen to. Don't encourage their false dreams by supporting them. That's the point here. Don't encourage their false dreams by supporting them. Because, like, like, like Jeremiah says here, they are prophesying lies to you and claiming that my authority to do so. He says, don't pay attention to the dreams that you are encouraging them to dream. In other words, the reason why most people encourage these people is because the the false teachers are telling them what they want to hear. That's why. And he says, you're just supporting liars and deceivers. Be careful. Don't encourage that kind of a thing. In other words, the Bible tells us we are to be discerning. Listen to 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice, he says, don't believe every spirit. He says, test the spirits. Why? Because many false prophets have gone into the In other words, the spirits, the false spirits are speaking through the men and the women. And we must understand that when we hear false teaching, sometimes we have to realize it's the evil spirits that are really doing the teaching. Not the humans, but the spirit that possessed them. Now, in order to be discerning, we need to know the word of God. That's what comes. We need to know the word of God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, Solid food is for the mature." who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is a tremendous verse. It tells us that the people who are easily deceived are those who are immature, who does not know the word of God. Who are those who know the word of God and who are mature? Is those who study and use the word on an ongoing basis and apply it to their lives. Not just knowing the word, but living in the word, applying it to their lives. Now notice verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. The Lord says, only when the 70 years of Babylonian rule are over will I again take up consideration for you. Notice now, God is saying that he's explaining his plan. I brought you into captivity, but it's only for a limited time. When that time is up, I'm going to lead you out. That's why I like to say with every problem, the problem's either just begun or it's happening now or it's on its way out. No problem is going to be forever. That's the point. But God wants us to, in the time of the problem, to be trusting in him nonetheless. God has a plan, and we must not have bought that plan in our life because some point along in that plan we become discouraged or disheartened. In other words, God's servant plan must be followed if its final course is to be realized. I read again, Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What happens when pain comes your way? I know when it comes my way, the first thing I say, Lord, what, take it away. Uh, my children like to tease me how I react when I have pain. In fact, the other night when I was poisoned with snappers or whatever it was, my daughter Sandy said she, she had a camera show, and with, a, with a recorder so she could see, show everybody how I was writhing in pain and groaning and everything. I don't like pain, and so the first thing comes the Lord, take it away. When we have problems, that's the first thing to do, Lord, take it away. But we shouldn't be praying that. We should be praying, Lord, give me the strength and the ability to undergo this in a way that honors and glorifies you. That's endurance, that's going through it, and it will lead to perfecting the believer as time goes on. Notice now, after that he says, then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you, And restore you to your land. Now, this is coming up to verse 12. In all of the trouble, he says, Then, when, after the time for suffering is over, and he knows it's over, then he says, I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your land. Now, why is that going to happen? Notice the next word in verse 11 For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. In other words, it's a sequence. Everything God has planned for us follows one step after the other. One thing happens because he planned it, and he planned it to happen so something else could happen. And it's important for us to go through every step that he has planned for us, and not to try to change him around or to stop any of them as well. He follows a plan. And God's plans are not willy-nilly. They're not ignorant of purpose for you and for me, and for him. He says that all things work together for what? Good to whom? Those who love God and are called according to his plan, his purpose, you see. He works it all out for our good and for his glory. It's only when we try to do things our way that we mess God's plan up, and we don't become a all. We don't become perfect anymore. It's like the process of a Caterpillar being turned into a beautiful butterfly. I'm sure you all know the story of the little boy who saw a caterpillar struggling out of his cocoon and so he helped it to get out. And the little thing just came out and fell to the ground, couldn't fly, it died. Why? Because God has arranged for that transformation, that metamorphosis to take place in such a way. That that struggle out of the cup cone was an important part of being transformed into that beautiful butterfly. And see, that's why we have so many ugly spiritual Christians around. We try to do our own thing in getting out of problems, in getting out of situations. Rather than following God's way, which might seem so hard or difficult, or so contrary to what other people might think, We try to do it ourselves, and so we don't experience the metamorphosis that God wants to take place in our lives. And so, remember this. One experience, one event in our lives, according to the great plan of God himself, follows naturally before and after the present one. If any of these are switched or stopped, God's plan will not be realized in our lives. When we fail or fall, in order to get back on course, we must go back to the point of failure. You don't have to go back to the very beginning, but to the point of failure. Put it right and begin again. This is why I always like to say that you cannot be a Christian unless you are repenting every day of your life. The Christian growth process is a process of repenting. Lord, I'm sorry I didn't do what I know you told me to do. I knew I should have done it. Lord, forgive me, forgive me. Repentance is not, does not just happen once in a believer's life. It's an ongoing experience. Now, then we come now to our verse for the day. And then we can understand the context now. For I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. See the context in which it is given now. It is given in times of problems and difficulties. And he's saying in that time, live like you're happy anyway. That's what James says. Remember he says, count it pure joy. That's what Jeremiah is saying here. Even when you're in the midst of trouble, live happily. Don't let one problem in your life dam up the flow of God's blessing in your life as a whole. This promise was made in the context of bondage as far as the Jews were concerned. It looked forward to the future. But only if his people, and it's a big if, only if his people followed the instructions from the point that they were when it was given. They had to do what God said. They just couldn't claim the promise if they didn't do what God said. In other words, this promise here was given as a means of encouragement, affirmation, assurance, and assurance That God was still in control of their life in spite of current difficulties. That's it, my friend. No matter how difficult it may be, no matter how extreme the situation may be, you have to understand that God is still in control. God never loses control of the life of his people. Never. His plan is always on track. We just have to submit ourselves to that. Conditions are involved, though, in order to uh, claim this promise. And these these conditions, I believe, are what we should be pursuing in 2012. Now let's look at some of them. Notice what he says, verse 12. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. But what do you have to do in order for God to hear your prayers? You have to pray. You have to go to him, isn't that right? He will not just hear you if you do not pray. That's the condition. Prayer is the condition to be heard. You say, I know that. Well, the point is, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray for your city? Do you pray for your people? Do you pray over the word? Do you pray over the messages you hear on the TV and the radio and what you're listening to right now? Do you pray? Do you call out to God for help? We've got to come to him. We've got to pray. Now, I believe that this is in the context, this is the call to united prayer. And this is an emphasis that we're going to be placing more upon in 2012. The the people of God praying for this city and praying for one another. Call for united prayer. Not just personal. The U is in the plural in in the text. But another feature is added to this command to pray. In verse 13, he says... Then you seek me in prayer and worship. Notice, prayer and worship. This is also a corporate and personal action. God wants to see his people come to him unitedly, calling out to show that we depend upon him, and then to worship him, and really worship him. By the way, worship is not just singing. Amen? It is not just having a worship team and having a good music program. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that God... Uh, said to some of the worship teams there whose heart was far from him, he says, I will not accept your songs. In fact, I wish somebody would close the door to the tabernacle to keep you out. Why? Because their heart was not with, with him, far away from him. When you call to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers, he says, and worship. Now notice this tremendous promise after these conditions are met. You will find me available to you. Isn't that wonderful? God says, if you come to me, you call out to me, you worship me, you recognize that I am the master planner of your life, and everything in your life is going according to my plan for you. He says, I will make myself available to you. God, the creator of the universe... The all-wise, all-knowing, the omnipotent one says, I will make myself available to you. And as we always say, if we have God on our side, we really don't need anyone else. Isn't that right? But God says he will make himself available to us. But there's a condition. Notice what he says in the next verse. If you seek me with all your heart and soul. Now this has to do with motive. This has to do with sincerity, this has to do with genuineness, just not going through the motions. Sometimes we think just getting in a frenzy and jumping up and clapping and shouting, that's worship. Now that could be worship, but also it could not be. It could just be an act. God knows it though. He doesn't look at the action so much as he looked at the heart. See, sometimes we come to what we call a worship service, and after we finish, we say, boy, I enjoyed myself. Or you ask the other person, did you like it? You see, that's not the comments or questions we should make. The question should, I wonder if God enjoyed it. I wonder if God liked it. No matter how we enjoyed it or or liked it, if God didn't, it's useless. You see, if you seek me with all your heart and soul. This speaks of deep and genuine sincerity and truthfulness before God. We have to stop being hypocrites in our Christian life. We cannot come to church and be one thing and then when we when we associate with our employers our employees or the people who come to our stores with something else. I'll never forget when i was growing up in Christians where I used to hear again and again where if that man is a Christian, he's a businessman now, I certainly do want to become one. You see? This is the kind of life But God is saying, it's not a part of my plan. Notice the promise again. You will find me available to you, but it's a conditional thing. It is something that we must proceed by following him in a sincere way. So this speaks of earnestness and sincerity, which should be free from all hypocrisy, of course. And so notice the repeated promise now in in verse 14. I will make myself available to you, says the Lord. Then I will reverse your fortunes and will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I have exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. So notice again, it's conditional. First God put them in exile. exile. Then he says, if you do what I tell you and you follow my plan, I will free you from that exile. That's all a part of my plan. And so, as we face 2012, and I believe from these scriptures here, that there are certain things that we need to do as we continue to live in a godless culture. Now notice, he says, He will restore them to their land and to their possessions, which he himself had provided. And he had taken away because of their disobedience and going after other gods. So one of the things that we must think about as we enter 2012 is this. What baggage do I have as I enter 2012, speaking from a spiritual point of view? What do I have to get rid of if God is going to fulfill this in my life? And God promises you get rid of these idols in your life. You get rid of other gods in your life. You say, I don't have any other gods. Well, consider very carefully. Bible says greed is idolatry. And if you want to see greed, just look at the Christians during Christmas time. That's why I say that many times the way we celebrate Christmas, when we go after gifts and all kinds of different things, it's idolatry. Because greed is associated with idolatry. Some of these things have to be dropped off regardless of what society thinks regardless to what culture thinks, regardless to what some Christians think. Some things have to be stopped. Some things have to be dropped. Nonetheless, if we are going to have God available to, to us. And God says, if you do this, I will make myself available to you. His power, his grace, his resources, his prosperity, everything will be ours. But we have conditions to fulfill. And if God did it then... God can and will do it again in 2012 and beyond. But we have to meet his conditions. We obey, he blesses. We we disobey, he disciplines. That's principles that are embedded in the word of God. You see. So let's review then as we close. What must we do to claim this promise here that we see on the screen in 2012? Well... We must be a part of the family of God. He was speaking to his people. You cannot claim this promise if you are not a believer in Christ. That is one of the big things I have Again, many of the uh, motivational speakers we see on TV. They give the promises of God to unbelievers. Promises that are only given to believers. These are for believers. In order for you to share in this, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ. As you enter 2012 and you have not yet become a Christian, there's no better time than right now. So you could begin a new year with a new life, being a new creature in Jesus Christ. And we invite you to do that. But also expect that if you disobey as a Christian, God is going to discipline you. God disciplines his people when they disobey. There's no doubt about that as well. Sometimes we rationalize it and get away from it. That's a mistake I made and so on rather than calling it sin. That relationship you have with someone, you say, well, that's just a part of the job. But yet it interferes with your relationship with your husband, your wife. That's sin, and God is going to discipline you if you don't repent. So you need to be a part of the family of God. Secondly, you must accept God's sovereignty in all circumstances of life, the good and the bad. When things are disappointing as well, and things are fulfilling. You need to accept the fact that God is the one who is in control, not you. Heck, accept His sovereignty in all circumstances of life, the good and the bad. And then thirdly, keep your life flowing around potential dams. In other words, don't stop living for Christ or doing things you know you should do just because of one problem in your life. You see, you could still glorify God in life if you have a problem with your husband or wife. You can still glorify God by the way you respond to that. You can still glorify God if you have financial problems and you can't meet payments. You can still glorify God. You don't have to curse the person who's coming asking for money you owe. You can respond in a godly way. You see, this is the kind of things we're talking about here. You keep your life flowing around potential dams. Don't let it stop you. Turn your negatives into positives. Again, by saying, God, how can I honor you in this life? How can I glorify you in this situation? And that's why I've been praying all through my time of illness. And I know sometimes I disappointed him because I was groaning so much and, and all kinds of things. But I was still saying, Lord, how can I glorify you in this situation? You see? And that's what we need to do in all of life's circumstances. When the pains and the disappointments come, Lord, how can I glorify you in my response? The problem is never the problem. The problem is always our response to the problem. Then we impact our godless culture with Christian values. Now this is an important part. If we do little things in our life, you'll be surprised to know how we can change this culture. Just by stop doing Some of the things we're doing on a daily basis that we know is not honoring God. But we do it just to please our customers, just to please other people. We do these things. We know they're not right, but we don't do them. Well, I think we need to stop doing those things and impact this godless culture with godly living. Even if we have to lose in it, you see, God will be the one who prospers you according to his plan and his timing. Then pray for our leaders. We should be praying for the FNM and the PLP and the DNA and everybody else who's involved in the government of our country. We should be praying for them on a regular basis. We should be praying for those, the policemen and the defense force, those who are protecting us. We have Ambrose. We have a couple of policemen in our, in our congregation. We need to be praying for men like that. Ambrose is out there every day risking his life to protect us. Do you realize that? You should talk to him sometime and see the things he has to face for you and for me. We need to thank God for them and to be praying for them. We need to be discerning in who we listen to. Reject those that we know are only preaching for their own benefit and not for the glory of God, no matter how they say it. Look at what they're preaching. Look at what they're saying. All right? Be careful of dreamers and visionaries. Be very careful that they... Don't encourage them... By supporting them, by listening to them, or even giving them money. Be discerning, the Bible tells us. We must pray and worship corporately. And we must do so with pure hearts. We must do so with clean hands. No hypocrisy. God is calling his church today to a life of holiness. Holiness. And that's what we need to work on in our lives. Taking out all of the, the uh, what does he call it, uh, Leaven that doesn't please God. Take it out of our lives. Especially when we come to worship as the people of God. There should be nothing between us as believers, brothers and sisters. We should be able to hug. I was going to say kiss, but I could get in problems with that. And embrace one another and look one another's eyes and say, I love you and I care for you without any problems. And as I say again, as we approach 2012, remember this. We are to be caring for one another as members of the body of Christ. And if we have one member in our congregation who has a need that another member could meet, and we know about that need and we don't do it, we are sinning against the body of Christ. We need to understand that. We need to care for one another. So he says, if you seek me with all your heart and soul, we need to be sincere Free from hypocrisy in our Christian worship. Again, verse 11 says, For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. But that plan comes at the end or in the process of other things being done before. And so I encourage you to pray this prayer as you enter 2012. Something like this. Lord, I now purposefully and sincerely commit or renew my commitment to wholly follow you in 2012 and beyond by meeting the conditions that you have set out in your word in order for me to experience the blessing of your good plan for my life. With your help, I will plan to follow your plan for my life. I pray that you might make a prayer similar to that. As you enter 2012. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. You do what God says, and God will do what he promises. Amen? Have a blessed new year as you follow God's plan.